Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some small way. And today, I'm very excited to have writer, producer, showrunner, Rael Tucker here with me. Hi, Rael. Hi. So excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with Rael's work, please let me give you an introduction. Rael Tucker was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and raised in Ibiza, Spain. Do you say Ibiza? I say Ibiza, but please say it however you want. Okay. Um, uh, Ibiza, Spain, where she went to an international hippie school. Yeah. Yes. She never graduated high school, but that didn't stop her from pursuing film and television writing. Early in her career, she teamed up with Sarah Gamble, another former guest of ours, and they together got runner-up on season two of the show Project Greenlight, which got them their first agents and then a bunch of meetings. From those meetings, Rail got staffed on the short-lived ABC show Eyes, starring Tim Daly, but in 2005, she jumped ship to a quirky new show that would become a 15-season phenomenon called Supernatural. In 2008, she left the show to write and executive produce another cult hit, HBO's True Blood, where she stayed until the end, at which time she became executive producer of A&E's The Returned. Then in 2016, she went to Netflix as executive producer of Jessica Jones, dabbling in that Marvel pool. 2018 marked a new milestone for Rail when she began writing and producing a show cre she created herself. That was the first one, right? Yeah. Okay, it's the Facebook Watch Blumhouse-produced anthology series Sacred Lies. Season one followed the story of a handless teen who escapes from a cult and finds herself in juvenile detention, suspected of knowing who killed the cult leader. Season two begins streaming on Facebook Watch tw February 20, and I don't know what that's about. Season two, because it's an anthology show, yeah. we do a different dark modern day fairy tale. We take like a grim fairy tale and modernize it. But really, we only do the obscure ones. Mm -hmm. So we're combining that with a true crime case this year. And it's the story of Juliette Lewis, who plays a telemarketer um, and an armchair detective who mm -hmm. listens to a lot of podcasts mm -hmm. and wants to solve um, the cases of uh, unidentified victims of Jane Doe's. Mm -hmm. And she gets hooks up with a teenage foster girl and they go on a hunt to sort of figure out who who she is and who how she's tied to these un, unresolved cases. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, and so on February 20, 20th, you'll be able to watch that. Uh, Rael, the movie you chose to talk about today is Kill Bill, which I had read an interview of yours and said that you were very obsessed with Quentin Tarantino's output, so I'm not necessarily surprised that this is something you chose. But can you give us a little explanation why this is one of your fave genre films? So for me, when I saw it in 2003, it I'd never seen women at the center of films be cooler or more badass or more fierce. Ultimately, it's the story of a survivor and Uma Thurman's performance in it is unbelievable and breathtaking start to finish in like a four hour movie. Mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino, for me, the reason I love him is that he creates worlds that as violent and some would argue even misogynistic as they are are the coolest, fiercest, most interesting, colorful, inspiring, and kind of masterful sort of love letters to cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think when I saw this film in 2003, it showed me what we could do with women at the center of film in a way that I had not never really seen until that point. And I wanted to talk about it today, though, because there's sort of a different context in which to view it. 
with all the information that's come out recently about the making of that film and what went on behind the scenes and all Mm -hmm. of that, I really think it's interesting to talk about films that we loved so deeply and passionately and then learning about some shitty stuff that went on behind the scenes and how do we resolve that and how do do we still keep loving the things that we loved? Man, that's like half of our episodes. Uh <laughs> genre, man. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Kill Bill uh, Volumes 1 or 2, uh, today's episode will give you spoilers on both, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Kill Bill first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce Kill Bill with what I hope is a very succinct synopsis of both volumes. Good luck. <sighs> Ready? Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, Kill Bill stars Uma Thurman as Beatrix, a.k.a. The Bride, who lay bloody on a chapel floor after being attacked by the deadly vipers. We swish forward four years later. The Bride shows up at the house of the first deadly viper, Vernita Green, a.k.a. Copperhead, played by Vivica Fox. There, the two women engage in an all-out brawl, which is momentarily interrupted by Vernita's young daughter coming home from school. Mommy, I'm home. Hey, baby. How was school? You see, it's a lot that's happened since their old boss, Bill, ordered them to kill one of their own. The bride kills Vernita, and we get a flashback of another viper, Daryl Hannah's L Driver, dressed as a nurse, uh, ready to kill the comatose bride in the hospital until Bill stops her. Elle, you're going to abort the mission. We owe her better than that. Oh, you don't owe her shit! Will you keep your voice down? You don't owe her shit! Now we go back to the bride waking up from her coma in the hospital to discover she's no longer pregnant. She breaks out of the hospital and steals a pussy wagon and spends her time teaching herself to walk again, meditating on revenge. In the meantime, we can say that that's when she went back to Vernita after she rehabilitated herself. Then, Oren Ishii, played by Lucy Liu, is her next target. We see Oren's backstory as a girl whose parents were murdered by the Yakuza. She swore revenge. Luckily for her. Boss Matsumoto was a pedophile. At 11, she got her revenge. She took her own revenge after training as an assassin and rose to lead the Yakuza's. The bride shows up at the House of Blue Leaves in Tokyo, where she brawls in an endless bloody battle with Oren's henchmen, women, girls, and boys. There's a lot of them. It's endless. It never stops. Before winning her fight against Oren with blood on the snow. She gets info about Bill, but we see Bill at the end of this volume asking if the bride, well, we don't need to see him, if the bride knows if her child is still alive. Volume 2 opens with Beatrix and her husband-to-be rehearsing their wedding vows years earlier when Bill, the father of the fetus, shows up and orders them killed. So now we get an explanation, finally, why she was in that chapel in the first place and why she was a bride. In the present, the bride heads to Deadly Viper Bud's trailer, but he's ready for her and knocks her out. Ain't nobody a badass with a double dose of rock salt that deep in their tits. Then buries her alive in the desert. 
we get a flashback of the bride training with martial arts master Pai Mei, played by Gordon Liu, and then the bride using those techniques in the present to dig herself out of her own grave. Ugh, metaphor. Meanwhile, Bud's waiting on L Driver to drop by his trailer to sell her the bride's rad sword for a cool million. But L comes and kills him with a poisonous snake instead, and then takes the sword and calls up Bill and says that the bride killed him. I have some tragic news. Your brother's dead. I'm so sorry, baby. She put a black mamba in his camper. The bride gets the sneak attack on Elle in that trailer and plucks out her other good eye before locking her in there with the snake to die. Then, the bride tracks Bill down to Mexico with the help of a retired pimp, where she discovers her child is alive and being raised by her father. Bill injects her with truth serum, and they come to a better, bittersweet understanding of the past. But Beatrix surprises Bill with her exploding heart maneuver learned from Pai Mei years and years ago. Pai Mei taught you the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Of course he did. Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. You're not a bad person. You're a terrific person. You're my favorite person. But every once in a while, you can be a real cunt. Bill makes his peace with Beatrix, takes five steps, and dies. The bride leaves with her daughter for a new life. Okay. Yeah, good job with that. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of time jumping. There's a lot of things going on. Let's just dig into first the fact that there had been uh, a lot of time in between this movie and, and the film that um, Quentin Tarantino had, had done before. Um, and a lot of people were speculating that he had writer's block. There was like all this kind of rumors of like, oh, he's got writer's block, which I mean, like. That dude is not going to his block. I don't know. It's just probably not going to happen for him. Um, but people were asking him about this in interviews when it came out. And he said, I didn't have writer's block at all. I did so much writing in those six years. I'm hooked up for a while now. I wrote a big war film, and it was like a gigantic novel, Inglorious Bastards. I ended up writing about three war films in the course of writing one. I had no anxiety about writing Kill Bill, but I was precious about it. It wasn't like I was afraid to let the world see it. I just wanted it to be really good. It took me a year to write one big fight sequence in Kill Bill, for instance. So... A year to write The House of Blue Leaves, just that sequence, right? And all of this other time to perfect, you know, these these stories and these backstories. And I think that there are some films of his where I feel like he rushed through them. This one, to me, feels like it's a very complete package. It knew what it was going to be, you know, and it, and it 
succeeds. There's, to me, not many loose strings. It's it's a really kind of um, succinct, which is a weird thing to say for a movie that, that is four two hours. movies, four hours. But it is, considering the story that it's telling. And I'm curious, you know, there is there's something to be said for kind of writing your passion, trying to just like, you know, vomit something on the page and like having that in, in there and, you know, just kind of going with it. But there's also something to be said with taking the time to get something perfect. Absolutely. I think it's insane that we expect filmmakers, writers and directors like somebody like Tarantino to sort of churn out film after film Mm -hmm. after film. I mean, it's it's incredibly hard to make something shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, no matter. <laughs> I have worked on things that I will not name that we've spent years, you know, working on, and they still turn out to be pieces of crap. And yeah. hundreds of people did their very best every day, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's truly a remarkable feat when anyone makes anything good. But I understand as somebody, particularly who's written a lot of action, which is not something that that you know I particularly love. Which yeah. is funny. I'm not. I'm very squeamish about violence, and I've you know, for instance, it's weird that I love this movie because I've never seen a kung fu movie in my life. Oh, never. Um, but I've ended up working on all these different shows, television shows that have just like huge action sequences as a part of mm-hmm. their DNA. Yeah, I mean, True Blood has like lots of you know vamp all-out brawls pretty pretty consistently yeah. if i remember correctly yeah it's either an orgy or a brawl like yeah. every episode so but you know and those <laughs> things are really they are really challenging to write because it's choreography it's 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 really not only do you have to figure out the story point but a great emotional arc inside of each ac- action sequence and how you can make those distinct because yeah just just spraying blood alone, I think we've become, for better or worse, so sort of numb mm-hmm. to that stuff. It's not enough anymore. How do you how do you gut punch people? How do you get them to care about about watching these sequences? And I think that's that's a really I think I find it a very challenging thing. So while I don't believe he actually sat down every day for a year to write no, an, a I sequence, also do not believe that. But I can imagine that he had pieces of that in his head that were constantly evolving over yeah. a year because that thing is nuts. That that particular sequence. Uh, you know, I want to get into, you know, a little further about uh, women and violence in, in your, yeah. I mean, like, because you are usually not into it, but I know a lot of people who love this movie who may not be specifically into all violence, right? Um, but this is what Tarantino had to say about women and violence. He said, quote, Harvey Weinstein was worried at one point that women would be turned off by the violence. I said, don't worry. They're going to love the movie. They'll be very empowered by it. I think 13-year-old girls will love Kill Bill. I want young girls to be able to see it. They're going to love Uma's character, The Bride. They have my permission to buy a ticket for another movie and sneak into Kill Bill. That's money I'm okay not making. There's a lot of things in that quote. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the quotes of that time period... Uh, have Tarantino name-dropping Harvey Weinstein, for instance. He was the guiding force on this movie completely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say without being inside of it how much of a guiding force a producer like Harvey was to this. I do think Tarantino's a visionary. I hate to credit Harvey with this person's work. Um, I would also never want to excuse you know, the years that people kept their mouth shut and looked the other way with all the shit that was going on, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think it's really important to sort of look at it in context because 
to me, I can only I can speak to my experience in 2003 when I sat in a movie theater and I watched this film and I felt this, you know, I'm a survivor and I have no problem talking about that. And mm-hmm. I felt this sense of, you know, empowerment is just seems too like trivial of a word. Like there was a woman at the center who was who was allowed to be. Um, strong and also vulnerable and sometimes sadistic and super brave and, you know, is sort of seeking for a kind of redemption. And and I felt fucking I felt fucking hugely empowered by by mm-hmm. seeing that film. And then now you talk about what happened with Harvey and Uma specifically behind the scenes before this film happened. Mm-hmm. You talk about the car accident that almost cost her her life and other things that that happened on the set and. And how do we come back for that? How do we reconcile these things that we love, right? I don't think the right answer is to say this is not a feminist movie or that, like, this is a film that we should now banish to an archive because that takes away Uma's victory. Like, if nothing else, like, she helped create this film. It's based on a character that she came up with with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. They worked on it for a solid year, and, like, she gave everything to this and it's remarkable and so to sort of shelve that and be like oh this is a this is no longer a feminist film kind of you know irks me yeah um in terms of the violence what's what i think is really exciting and interesting when rewatching this film right now and is that so the violence for me normally i don't show it on my shows i don't think i think what's scarier is the stuff you imagine personally yeah but the way Tarantino handles it, for most characters, you, you know, it's hard to emotionally relate to all the people that that Beatrix kills on the show because she does it in this sort of outlandish, yeah. cartoony, like, you know, blood, 450 gallons of blood spraying everywhere. It becomes operatic, kind of a ballet. It, there's mm-hmm. something definitely poetic about it, but it's not sentimental. It's not emotional. It's not realistic. Yeah. But in contrast, all of the violence that happens to the bride in this film is visceral and painful. And he lingers like shit. Like, you know, you're her. She's slamming her fist into a board like for like it feels like 20 minutes, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're experiencing the pain of that. And then, you know, sitting in the darkness as she's buried alive for like, I don't know, feels like one of my worst fears forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he's he is. Some would say he relishes this violence or, you know, that's how people read it against her. But I see that it's very intentional as a way to connect you to what this woman has been through and how incredibly badass and brave she is to survive it and to give her license to do the terrible shit she goes on to do to all of these other characters that have wronged her. Yeah. And so we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about that, too. Um, There's a lot of things. Vivica A. Fox has a lot of interesting things to say about the making of the movie, too. Uh, Also, some editing stuff. Um, I I love his his late editor, who we worked with consistently. So we'll get into all of that. Uh, We'll be right back. Do you have a to-do list that never seems to end? Running from a flight to Tokyo straight to the House of Blue Leaves? Still have to cook dinner for yourself? Well, Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are perfect for the office, home, and anywhere your thirst for vengeance takes you. 
With Beta Brand, you never have to sacrifice comfort or function for style. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and stay wrinkle-free. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles, including premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Uh, right now, you're in luck because our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash switchblade. That's right. It's 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash switchblade. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. So go to betabrand.com slash switchblade for 20% off. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Together we're The Flophouse. A podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things That We Don't Know, the movie, and also, who's that grandma? Zazzle Zippers, Breakdown 2, and Backhanded Compliment. Elvis is a policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and today I'm joined by Ray L. Tucker, and we're talking about Kill Bill. So, I want to get into a couple of things that you were talking about before the break. One of them, um, I really do want to go over a quote that Vivica Fox had said that was uh, in her book. Um, the background was that every person who was in this movie who had to be in a fight scene, no matter how short, um, had to train for four months in both China and in the U.S., in, in Culver City. So they were training in Culver City uh, for a very long time, and uh, this was every day from, you know, like nine to five nonstop, right? And very, very hard things. And every Friday, apparently, Quentin Tarantino would come in and evaluate how they were doing. And he was not happy. So on the third week of the training, um, you know, Vivica Fox was expecting uh, him to be like, oh, you guys are doing really good. But he was just like, you guys are fucked up. You're not doing anything right. And uh, according to Vivica, she said, I lost it on him. And she said, is this a beat us up contest? Are we are we fucking doing anything right? God damn. Everyone gasped. I felt Uma draw back. Lucy grabbed my hand and was trying to do a kind of acupressure on me, whispering, calm down, calm down. And then Uma said to me, you have to learn to be quiet. Speak less. He's tough, but he's not stupid. He'll concede you something if it's to make the film better. Learn to attack intelligently, Vivica, because he's got the power to fire you. So I watched her argue with Quentin intelligently and successfully for wardrobe changes and even dialogue rewrites. She made it a true collaboration, pushing him away from simply making an ode to the samurai films he made us all watch with him towards something new. Kill Bill is an astonishing work because of their shared efforts. It's because they each approached it not as a job but as a cornerstone of their careers and I think that's like a really astute way of maybe talking about the collaboration of filmmaking and and you know he's uh, Quentin Tarantino I think is a great artist um, but at the same time he's working with some of the best collaborators you know and they're getting his best work right and I think that this movie shines differently 
because of Uma Thurman, as we were talking about before. When she's getting uh, costume changes and dialogue rewrites, that's just not something an actor is going to get. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's kind of crazy how we credit a single filmmaker with any film or any mm-hmm. creative work. I mean, it's nuts. There's so many reasons why things succeed. And typically they have to do with a certain amount of luck and mostly to do with the incredible people that you're lucky enough to surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. For instance, I just finished wrapping a season of working with a living legend, Juliette Lewis, you know, mm-hmm. who's the star of my show. And I come in with a very clear idea of what that character is because I've been working on it for like at least eight months and I've written most of the entire scripts and backstory and arcs and I have this whole idea and I might even have wardrobe and and there is a part of you that just, you know, wants to get as close as you possibly can to the thing inside your brain, you know, that is the little thing that sparked all of this and mm-hmm. and, and is getting you to persevere and get through it. But the magic, and I'm not just saying this, really happens when somebody who's an equal artist comes into a project and is like, well, no, that's not how I see it. And this is who she is. And yeah. this is what this character means. And and Julia, you know, definitely pretty quickly, it was like, this is what she's wearing. This is what she's eating. And a certain amount of it was negotiating and talking about the lines day to day because she comes into it. And she she's looking at it from a completely different place than I'm looking at it from. I have mm-hmm. so many things that I'm balancing and and concerned about. And she's just living inside of this one experience. Yeah. And, and that kind of insight into what we're doing, you know, and me being able to and needing to trust her to bring that is what makes is what makes the work, I hope, great. <laughs> and <laughs> what made the experience actually exciting, you know, day to day and, and unpredictable and fun and rewarding. And, yeah. And sometimes hard, but I think that's part of it. The, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about, like, when you met Juliet and, like, the, the things that she knew about this character. Because I, I do think about the uh, Uma Thurman's story about, uh, or actually Quentin Tarantino, this is the way that he told it, when he met her for Pulp Fiction, when he was auditioning people for her role, that um, she was the only one who didn't come in and have homework done on the character. And he liked that because he was so attached to the idea mm-hmm. of what he had in his head. And what ended up happening is that she just talked to him about herself, and then he really liked it so much that he geared, he changed the character for her. And so she, I feel like she's got like a lifelong of just kind of like taking the back entrance into the way that she wants to work, you know, maybe not like finding the ways to um, successfully, not maybe not manipulate people, but, uh, but find a way to work with other people. I cannot speak for Uma, but what it sounds like to me from the outside is, you know, she's She's an incredibly intelligent woman who's done what she needed to do to succeed inside of a male-dominated industry yeah. where you're, as a woman, not allowed to get angry or raise your voice or tell him he's a fucking asshole. You're just not allowed, right? So you have to find other ways to communicate and to get your way. Um, and I've certainly experienced that. I know all of my female showrunner peers go through that and think a lot about it and it actually you know we spend a certain amount of our free time calculating how we're going to have the conversation with people that I Mm -hmm. think 
other people, other well, men mostly, walk into and just have the conversation mm-hmm. and have it go wrong. And I'm up all night, like, writing notes about it, you yeah. know? Like, how can I calculate this? You had talked earlier, you mentioned before that uh, Uma Thurman had just had a child when mm-hmm. um, when this had gone through. Um, and the... The thing was that they had this idea earlier, you know, they they had, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, too. It's just the fact that when they were working on Pulp Fiction, they had had this idea of this female samurai warrior who was hell-bent on revenge. Tarantino wrote eight pages, put it away. Seven years later, she's like, you still got those pages? And he's like, yeah. And then they started in earnest, you know, seven years later. And then, of course, she got pregnant. And, you know, that... it. So he ended up staying with her. Um, He could have gone with a different actress and uh, she probably would have been crushed. She said that she would have understood. But he said that it was just it felt like cheating on her to to do that. And so they didn't. But the process of working with her, it actually turned out great that it had taken a little bit longer of time and that she had had a baby because it changed the entire arc of Kill Bill. And he said, quote, If I had written it there at that time, I probably would have based it on Uma of the time, a 22-year-old girl. So maybe none of the aspects would have fit into what what we have now. And I've got to tell you that in the writing process, I didn't really know that Bibi, the bride's daughter, was alive for like the first year of writing it because I write until I get to the end. It was only in the last four or five months of the writing process that I realized that Bibi was alive. Until then, I was like Uma's character. I didn't know. And I was just going on getting revenge. But yeah, it had everything to do with it. It took me a year and a half to write the script, and I spent that year and a half hanging out with Uma. I was living in New York, writing it there, and we were just doing it together. I was writing it, but she was reading it, and we were talking about it, and we're hanging out, and I'm getting to know her all over again. And a lot of things had changed with her, so I was getting to know her all over again, her rhythm of speech, and that kind of stuff you want to do as a writer. And while getting to know her, I'm getting to know Maya, her daughter, and I'm being warmed by that. And all those things started coming out. And during that time, Uma was a mother. That's what she did. So as you start learning about her, that's what you start taking away. So I thought that that was like a really lovely kind of, you know, tribute to that kind of collaboration, that specific quote in that interview that that it kind of changed him as a person, hanging out with this new mother and seeing what that could add to a character in a story. Yeah, and I think I think I want to give I want to give him credit for actually recognizing that and mm-hmm. being malleable enough to say there's a deeper level to this character and to this story that I'm telling to yeah. find, right? Because I do think he's pretty gifted and I think he could probably write the surface level of that movie where she wasn't a mom and she's just kicking ass and everyone would be like, "Yeah, that was fun." Yeah. Right. And but there's what separates for me this film from all the rest of his films. And it's by far my favorite of his films is is really that storyline is the kind of depth of of Uma's character of Beatrix and and how sort of vulnerable and flawed she's allowed to be. Like we, we talk about mothers and how we see them and how we write about them. And I've been in so many writers rooms where we talk about everyone's got to be a great mom. And oh, if God, you're a yeah. mom, then you can't be sexy. And if you're a mom, then you can't kick ass. And a mom would never do that. And I I, I think, you know, that 
there's there's there was something really revolutionary about her being a mother and the sort of softness that she played alongside that ferocity. Oh, yeah. I think I mean, that's the thing that Uma was saying, too, um, was the fact that she felt okay with a very wide tonal range that was had like a lot of whiplashes in it because um, she was comfortable with Tarantino and mm-hmm. felt that he could bring that out on the screen and make it work in the edit. Um, otherwise, it's just it was really hard for her. She said, um, that's one of the fun things with Quentin, to emotionally turn on the dime. The opportunities were there all over the character, but it is switching. His movies always switch from one feeling to another very quickly. He has an incredibly sensitive pulse in his films, and so it gives you a lot of confidence to try crazy things and do one thing very funny and the next scene very intense and to believe that the director actually encompasses enough tonal range that that actually would work in one movie, which is very unusual. It's wonderful that he's doing that and that he can do that. But could you, I mean, like, what is your experience trying to pitch something that's just like, no, it's like this, but also this, but that, you know, there's only, I think there's only a few people that are trusted enough to be given money um, to actually execute something that has so many tonal shifts. You know, it's, it's hard it's hard to sell things. <laughs> I hear you. I, I will say at this point in my career, and, you know, it's funny, I've gotten back to where I started this way, but I write everything, almost everything on spec these days. So I don't go in and try to pitch shows very often and then yeah. sell them that way. Because the things that I want to do, hopefully, are not things you're super familiar with and yeah. are taking risks and are really hard to explain. So yeah. you're standing there being like, so imagine, you know, this is a girl show about a girl and she doesn't have any hands and she's in juvenile detention, but it's really about a cult that's all told in nonlinear flashbacks. <laughs> like everyone's just going to roll their eyes at you and be like, okay, when is this meeting over? But I, I went and optioned a, the book that that's inspired by mm-hmm. and based on, and I wrote it myself on spec and invested my own money and went and sold it and turned it into a show. And there's no other way it could have been done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, everything I do is pretty much that way and I think that he mostly writes in his own little bubble Mm -hmm. like he writes stuff and he has to put it on the page for you to understand what it is Mm -hmm. I would say that that's probably the only way to get things through that are weird right absolutely and I think that's okay because I mean as writers I think that's okay because I think this is what we're here to do right we're here to write and the pitch process is interesting but what happens when you pitch a project is that other people get involved right from the get-go and you're you're sort of giving away a certain amount of your creative control and and vision and point of view to all your collaborators before you really have the tone you're going through on the page. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of just go write what you want to write and and dream big and do something weird and and if you know if there's something in it that works, people will. If you build it, they will come. Well, let's take a break because when you come back, I want to get into the rhythm because you already brought that up and I want to talk about the rhythm of the editing. So we'll take a break and we come right back. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey. 
hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Rayel Tucker, and we're talking about Kill Bill. I think um, one of the things that you can do with a movie like this is apparently you can go $14 million over budget, <laughs> multiple months over production. <laughs> yeah, no no female director within our my lifetime is going to have that experience, probably, sadly. Um, Uma Thurman was defending it in the sense, though, and I... I actually agree with her the fact that what they were able to accomplish still with not the greatest budget and with only 14 million over and that particular amount of time is is not actually that bad for what they able they were able to get out of it. I mean these were like two separate very well selling movies. You know, this wasn't like some kind of flop. It was like Oh, they hugely got profitable footage out of this. <laughs> yeah, critically successful, like iconic, a lot of people would argue, and mm-hmm. hugely profitable. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, it all worked out for him. He's lucky. <laughs> He's lucky it's so good. Here's another thing he was lucky with, though. He was lucky that he got tired while he was shooting uh, because he chose not to play a part in the movie. I'll say, quote, I'd done all the training on Pi May (laughs) and we shot for eight weeks in the House of Blue Leaves. And somewhere in the fifth week of shooting in the House of Blue Leaves, I was just like, you know, I'm just having one, so much fun directing this. And two, it's taking everything I have to direct it that all of a sudden I wasn't looking forward to playing Pi May anymore. It seemed like a big pain in the ass and I just wanted to concentrate. And then I had Gordon Liu in the wings, who was just so perfect for it. And it was almost criminal not to cast him so it became a very easy decision thank you for letting gordon Liu play by may i know god help us help us if that had not happened i mean jesus i just would not have wanted to go over the think pieces of no. that whatsoever the appropriation on itself the oh yeah yes yes the symbol of him being the master at the center of the entire... Exactly. Do you feel like you are in a position where you would like to be directing? Yes, I would at this point. You know, it's funny as I started out directing and I did AFI's directing workshop for women mm-hmm. and made a short and I did directed a lot of theater. Um, but I didn't do any directing on any of the shows I've been on because my job is so fucking insane in terms of the amount of things that I'm already juggling and how creatively involved I yeah, am. Yeah, you are controlling I've... a lot of the scripts, making sure that everything is is um, through a certain voice through the entire arc of a series, right? Yeah, and beyond that, I'm hiring the you know production designers, and I'm hiring the costume designers, and I'm approving every set, every prop, every t-shirt, you know what I mean? So just the sheer amount of creative input I already have, it felt to me like, okay, let's let's leave this for, let's leave directing to people, particularly women who I've really, since I've become showrunner, really wanted to champion 
female directors is leaving that to people who this is their dream and this is what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But as I'm going into my next projects right now, I have a couple things in development and I, the dance of sitting on a set next to a director and sort of having to negotiate uh, the shot I want that I see so clearly in my head <laughs> at this point is mm-hmm. getting a little tiring. Like. I, I feel like I'm expending more energy to a certain extent. Fine, I'll just do it myself. I know. It's bad. <laughs> and that said, I've had incredible collaborations with amazing directors, and I'm grateful, and they've taught me so many things, and that's yeah. why I think I could maybe give it a shot at this point. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting ready to do some of that. I think that we should say a little bit of something about David Carradine, though, as we uh, close up, because uh, R.I.P., um, yeah. very lovely actor who uh, was in so many genre pictures from beginning to end of his life and was just game for whatever, always brought every kind of weird emotion he had. to. I don't know. He's, he's such a strange actor. Um, but he said that it was a interesting process working with Tarantino just because everything was constantly rewritten on set all the time. Like there were new pages all the time, all the time. And, you know, he was working in TV for a long time with his show. And like, he was like, I don't, I don't feel like that ever happened with me. He was working, you know, with Roger Corman early in his career. And he's like, that didn't happen with me. <laughs> like We didn't never got this level of rewrites. And he said, quote, Quentin is open to changing with the wind. And he did it with his writing right up until the very end. That whole final monologue changed like five times. The last time it changed was the day I came in to do it. I had the whole thing committed to memory mm. and he just threw it out the window and started over. <laughs> I mean, again, it's one of those moments where it's like, bless him, but I would rather, you know, burn or be buried alive than have to do that as a creator myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the person who kind of writes everything before we start filming usually mm-hmm. so that every single department can prep and all my actors have every single script before we start shooting mm-hmm. and we've talked about the entire arc and of course shit changes on the day when you get into it in a rehearsal and there's like that doesn't really work and you know the couch isn't where it's supposed to be and that line of dialogue isn't singing but you know to rewrite a monologue like that up until the very day of is so not my process yeah. that it sounds like hell and I bless all the actors that have to deal with that because I don't I don't think anyone can argue that that's a great uh, a great way to work with people who have to memorize lines. It's hard. It's super hard. But I also understand maybe, I guess, just trying to come from Tarantino's side on it a little bit is he's read that thing two zillion times over however many years. And he's gotten to this moment and he feels like he has a greater, deeper understanding of what yeah. it means now. And he wants to get it right. but. Yeah. I think the yeah. the quote in, in Carradine's context, too, was the fact that he had worked with directors where they knew something might not be wrong or the location wasn't perfect, but they're going to do it anyway because this is the job and they have to do it. Whereas the experience working with Tarantino was just like, if it's not right, then it's not right and we have to change it. And And of course, again, going back, he has that power to be able to do that, which a lot of people, again, would not be able to go over $14 million because they know something was wrong. Um, it's a, you know, it's a it's a privilege and a luxury. And he mm-hmm. uses it. And I think he wielded it for better in this because um, Bill's monologue is really wonderful. The end scene of Kill Bill, everything about it is really kind of tonally and pre- uh, perfect and precise. Mm-hmm. Um 
it is uh, it's beautiful and it's emotional and that's something it's the thing that Uma Thurman said drew her to all of this in the end was that even on set when you know she had finally killed Bill she went to her dressing room was like screaming and laughing and being like I killed Bill I killed Bill but the idea that that wasn't really what the movie was about that it it had to end with killing Bill, but it, it wasn't about that. Yeah, it's the most toxic relationship story ever, mm-hmm. right? It's this it's this horrible love affair. It's this horrible kind of abusive relationship love affair by the end. Um, and yeah, that monologue talking about about good and evil and, and who we pretend to be versus who we really are mm-hmm. is, is some profound, as profound as probably Quentin has ever been. And I monologues agree. are not easy to write. Oh my God, they're so hard. <laughs> They're so hard. But, you know, I would say, yes, they're hard. But, you know, what's harder is, like, just speaking. Because if you sit in a room and you get to decide how people get to say the most important thing that they're ever going to say for, like, days, weeks, years, yeah, that's hard. But you have time to really do that and think about it. What's so much harder is just doing things like sitting here and trying to actually sound articulate for an hour <laughs> without having the benefit of some incredible writer writing all of that for you. Well, Rael, you did a great job, <laughs> and thanks for wrapping up the episode for me. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show thank and you. talking about Kill Bill. And again, um, your show is going to come out. You have a new title for it, though, right? Because of the anthology? Yeah, it's Sacred Lies, The Singing Bones. The Singing Bones. And it comes out February 20th, 2020. So this Thursday. Um, and it's 10 episodes. They're half hour. It's on Facebook Watch, which means it's free and you don't even have to have a Facebook account. I'm not even supposed to say that. But if you just Google Sacred Lies, anyone can watch it pretty much anywhere in the world for free. And uh, it's a totally bingeable, true crime, female driven, mm-hmm. kind of kick ass, dark mystery. My God, just watch it. Okay, thank you so much for coming on, Rail. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Mad Coyle says, This is an endless, entertaining show with incredible hosts, one of the greats. Please be like Mad Coyle and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can also tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group, too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Oh, you don't owe her shit! MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.